0: I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much for listening to my podcast. If you like what you hear, please follow me on Instagram, at Zibby Owens, and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Today's sponsor is Blueland Cleaning. Blue Land is an eco-friendly cleaning products company on a mission to eliminate single-use plastic packaging. They offer their products as a set of reusable bottles along with cleaning tablets that you simply add to warm water to make a full bottle of hand soap or cleaning solution. Also founded by a mom with a three-year-old son. My kids loved making all these products with me. And now we have these amazing glass bottles and all different color hues uh, that make cleaning a little bit more fun, especially during quarantine. I had a really emotional interview with Jason Green, who I had also interviewed on Instagram Live. So if you want to watch that, you can you can do that on my IGTV channel. Jason is the author of memoir, Once More We Saw Stars, which is about the death of his two-year-old daughter in 2015. Her name was Greta. And for people who live in New York, you might remember reading about it because she died sitting with her grandmother when bricks from a nearby building fell on her head and and ultimately killed her, which I will never forget because, oh my gosh, it's like everyone's worst nightmare to have something like this happen. Jason is an author, a former music critic, and editor who served as senior editor of online music magazine Pitchfork. So he's a journalist, not just of this memoir, but of all types of writing. And he really openly shared his experience and his experience even writing the memoir, and I think you'll find it really eye-opening, illuminating, and just very emotional and important. Welcome, Jason. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books.
1: Thanks for having me, Zibby. I really appreciate it. It's
0: nice we can follow up our Instagram Live little teaser with a, with a full podcast. So thank you for coming I back. know. <laughs> no.
1: It was so nice to chat with you. So I'm really glad we get to chat a little bit more. Yeah, any human interaction right now is good, I'll tell you. <laughs> like,
0: <laughs> These We're
1: times. Little cubby holes. The, the, yeah. uh,
0: the times continue to get more and more crazy as I mean, I don't know. By the third time I interview you, who knows who knows what's gonna go on? Oh God, <laughs> let's
1: not even go there, right? Yeah, I know.
0: Could you please tell listeners what your amazing, inspiring, beautiful memoir is about, please.
1: Oh, thank you. I wrote a memoir called Once More We Saw Stars, and it's basically an account of the fifteen months. That separated two of the most defining events of my life. In May of 2015, on May 17th, 2015, my two-year-old daughter, Greta, was killed. A brick fell from an eight-story windowsill on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And Greta was sitting on a bench on the sidewalk with my mother-in-law, her grandmother, Susan. Susan was hit in the legs, but Greta was struck in the head, and she never woke up. At the time, she was our only child. We donated her organs. We swiftly became headline news, and my wife, Stacy and I had to go back after 48 hours of saying goodbye to the life that we thought we were going to live with our daughter to make sense of what was left. And 15 months later, Stacy gave birth to our son, Harrison. So the book I wrote measures the distance between those two places. It, it tries, it represents one person's attempts to sort of take stock of what, just massive emotional trauma and loss will mean to a life, first my own and my wife's, and then as we become pregnant with our second child, the book becomes sort of a reckoning for what that life may or may not mean for that child. And the title hints a little bit at the journey that I went on, where we were in a place of profound despair and darkness, and over the course of the time of basically living through that trauma, of processing the massive sort of vacuum that was left in our lives after Greta was killed and preparing ourselves to be parents again, we emerged into this other place, what I kind of like to call cautious hopefulness. And that's sort of the story.
0: Well, I know when we spoke before, you were journaling about it anyway and then made the conscious choice at some point to not just keep these thoughts for yourself, but to share them with the world. Can you talk about that decision? Yes,
1: I'm happy to. It sort of happened around six months after. I think it really, co- the decision, I'm, I, it, I mean the decision to turn my journal into something else kind of happened when Stacey got pregnant. I had been writing about the feeling of living through this indescribable pain since the minute I got back from the hospital. I don't really know why or how I was writing, but I just know that it was in the moment, something I felt very compelled to do. It's kind of part of my strategy for living through the you no know, the next half an hour of whatever was coming my way. I would maybe I would be on the phone with my mother or perhaps with a therapist and I would be ta- I would be crying or whatever it was that I was feeling and I would be hearing myself say these things. You know, I would be I would be explaining what was going on as best I could, or just, you know, or just crying or, and saying, why did this happen? And then after I got off the phone, I would sit there and I would almost listen to what I just said. And then something told me to write it down. And as I did, I felt like something was something important to me was, was happening. So I kept doing it. And I, I don't think that a lot of people that I've talked to have told me anything similar about their trauma. Most people I talked to tell me that they were unable to write sentences or read or focus because of the acute nature of what they were living through. And I don't know why I was able to really, but I, I, I paid attention to the fact that I was even through everything. And so I made it a bit of a practice. And six months later, I had a lot of writing and it was all for me, really. It was all just me making sense of 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 my new existence and reconciling with all the nasty, ugly emotions that come up when you're grieving And then when Tasty got pregnant, I kind of looked at what I had and it just clicked into my brain. Uh, I was actually writing something for my son, and if not explicitly for him, then for myself as I prepared to be someone else's father. And for me, part of that became, I have to show this to someone else. This can't just be a private journal for me anymore. I had a real need to share it somehow. And so it started to become a book, at least in my brain. And I continued writing. I didn't change anything I was doing. Every day I wrote about what I felt. But as I did, I kind of, in the back of my mind, was thinking a little differently about where where this journey was going and why I was taking the time to do it. And it was a very slow evolution, you know. From there, I, I didn't show anyone a word, a word, and including my own wife, what I'd written. She knew I was writing, but just left me alone with it. You know, she was doing her own private grieving as well until many weeks after Harrison, our second child was born about seven weeks after I had spent the first several weeks of his life, you know, newborn babies sleep a lot. And so I was well, we're sitting there writing uh, and it was kind of pouring out of me. And I, I finally stepped back and it had been about a year that I've been writing nonstop. stop. And I said, someone needs to see this now, but only then did I really, I, I looked someone else in the eye and told them I'm writing a book. Here it is. So I I talk about this at length because it's interesting to me as I hear myself talk about it. It emerged from such an internal place and I only sort of understand the slow journey it took to becoming a book by talking about it because I didn't initially write any of these very intimate thoughts down with the intent of sharing them with anyone.
0: But that's exactly what makes them so good. I mean mm. other other authors give advice all the time somebody I spoke to earlier today just write as if you're talking to a friend write as if nobody will ever read the words and you didn't do that as a yeah. trick you actually were doing that to you know as your own sort of therapy based practice and that's why mm-hmm. I mean people connect through words the more open you are the more that the reader can you know see into you and connect and I don't know I mean I think that's the the gift of it as well mm. and I should have said earlier you know I'm obviously I said this before when we spoke, but just to hear you talk about it, I'm just so profoundly sorry for your loss and what your family went through oh, and you and right. everything else. And, you know, I don't want to be glib about it just because we've already discussed it. But, you know, it's it's heartbreaking every every time to discuss it. And I just, I know I can't feel what you feel, but I just want you to know that I'm here and that I, you know, my heart goes out to you in every way it can. So.
1: And that's, thanks a lot, Dibby. That means a lot. I appreciate that. Yeah.
0: So how did how did you... I know in the book you talk a lot about, you know, coping and how you are getting through and whatever else, but how do you make sense of then having another child into a world that has sort of not been, you know, upholding its end of the bargain, essentially, and, you know, creating a safe place to raise a child? Like, how did you, how did you come to terms with that? How did you emotionally even cope with that?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting that you said what you just said, actually, that this idea that the world's not holding up its end of the bargain, because I I felt that way very strongly after the freak accident that took Greta. How could this happen? But I, I think in the time since, I've come to have a different idea about what the world offers you <laughs> <laughs> or doesn't. You know, I, I, mean, I there are so many different ways for me to talk about my feelings through different lenses. But And one of them I haven't talked a lot about because it felt impersonal or it didn't feel like it fit me. But one that I've thought about is political. And by that, I should say that I've been extremely fortunate. I've lived my life the beneficiary of tremendous amounts of good fortune, unexamined, relatively speaking. You can be thoughtful about your privilege to a certain extent, but you still live in it. It's not easy to just turn around and gaze at every decision you've made and see how it's affected other things or other people or where it's come from. That's hard. But when your daughter dies in such a freak accident, you start to re-examine what you thought the world sort of owes you. (laughs) Or you ask ask yourself, did I believe the world owed me things? And I think I really was shocked into a realization that I'd had this very complacent relationship with the world, and it's dangers, or lack thereof. You know, I, I don't believe that the world has made a bargain with me to keep me safe. Or my children's safe. And that, you know, I think that's something that others feel. That's something that some people have felt forever, and that people who have been fortunate enough not to feel are struggling with more and more. Oh my God, I'm not going to be safe. I'm not going to be safe either. I think that's a very real thought that makes people. React in all kinds of unexpected ways and so I think that now that Harrison is three years old, and you know he's still we you know we live in a city that's that's sort of tearing itself apart in a way right now what's happening is so painful and in some ways necessary, but we're also we are lucky people, even with what happened to Greta. We are lucky people in the world right now, and so i can't help but think about that whenever I talk about safety or raising a child in this world like. Yes, in many ways, the world that I'm raising my son in feels different to me. And it's, it's dangers feel different than the one that my parents raised me in. But that's all very subjective. And it means more to me than it means to my son. My son believes the world is safe and happy and great. He's three. That's what you're supposed to believe. If you're, you know, again, if you're lucky. And so that's kind of my answer to that. That's how I feel about raising my child in an increasingly perilous world. I think among many, many other things, the lesson I took from the brick falling and killing my daughter was that I had believed the world was safe and that that was probably foolish.
0: (laughs) I mean, I think that moment when... and i think it happens for people at, at all different times but when you realize that what you relied on was actually a figment of your own imagination perhaps designed to stem or mm. you know mitigate your own levels of anxiety <laughs> and you realize mm. that yeah, living sure. that way is really just a construct of your brain and is not actually true that's a that's a big wake up call and one that it's a, it's hard i think for people to adjust to whether it's in something awful and traumatic like losing your daughter as you went through or Something much smaller, a car accident, or just anything when you realize for the first yeah. time, like, oh, wait a minute here. <laughs> this isn't really. Yeah, what I don't I'd- have
1: a seatbelt on, and if I do, it might not protect me. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. Well, and the state that you go into when you realize that for the first time is called hypervigilance, because then you suddenly your body and it's a very common after effect of trauma. you know, I've read a lot about not not, not an expert. <laughs> I read a, a fair bit about trauma, just trying to understand my own, and some of the words that have stuck with me are because they 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 resonated. And this idea of hypervigilance, which is, means that your whole system then suddenly watches everything, mm-hmm. whereas before you felt like you were watching nothing, now you have to watch everything. And that's, an equally unnatural state of being and not you know in itself sustainable and so then you have to learn to live in between
0: easier said than done oh. <laughs> perhaps
1: well i don't know how to do it either but yeah. you know, yeah, easier said <laughs> than done
0: how did you there i feel like there are so many examples of of a of a loss like this really affecting marriages and You know, a child dies and then there's the divorce on top of it or you just can't get back from it. Or I don't know if you're watching, I Know This Much Is True on HBO, written by Wally Lamb, but now it's a limited series. And anyway, (laughs) I'm bringing that up only in how do you cope with somebody when you've gone through a loss together like this? And yet Mm -hmm. you not only have stayed together, you've had another child. And like, what's the... Not what's the secret, but in your situation, what what was it that kept you together, as opposed to becoming one of yeah. the casualties of having your marriage as a casualty as well? If I'm not, yeah. if I'm not crying, yeah. and you don't have to answer.
1: No, I mean, I, I it's, it's, it's a I mean, it's a question I asked myself early on. I, I think that in the dawning enormity of what was happening to us, one of the first thoughts that put it through my head, you know, albeit kind of hazily, was. Oh my God! What's going to happen to us? What's going to happen to my, to our marriage? You know, I, 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 marriages don't survive this, and I I think that I just had that received wisdom in my head, and I know that it bears out. You know, when you look at families who've lost children, you know, I, I, many of them do end in divorce, and so I think I, without knowing any firsthand yet, experience how I was going to feel and how Stacey and I were going to feel. I was terrified at this idea. Oh my God! I'm going to lose her too. You know, I. I it was sort of a response to the moment and the answer that i that i discovered was that we really needed each other more than we ever had before even i mean with, I, we'd already just lost a member of our family it seemed inconceivable that we also not be with each other i, I don't know i you know i mean i think that it really i'm really wary to not because i'm private you know but to talk about how our marriage survived only because I don't think it's applicable to anybody else but the two of us at all. To tell you about like how Stacy and I survived that is really only to tell you a story about Stacy and me. It doesn't really tell you. A, I mean, I don't think there's advice to give to anybody about how to survive a trauma with their marriage intact. I just know that we didn't fall apart. And I know that we didn't fall apart, in one, because we, we just felt this instinctive need to be with each other and comfort each other through it, and that we didn't really, that just was. And also I think that we discovered that we needed similar enough things that we didn't, I mean, some people, when they're grieving as a couple, if you're grieving a child or you find that the two of you don't have the same needs. And that is, I think, very difficult to maintain closeness in a marriage through, although I don't know because I didn't experience that, but we didn't, we didn't have diametrically opposed needs. I didn't, you know what I mean? Like some people, for instance, one of the parents has a deep, deep need to talk about their child all of the time, and the other parent might not be able to hear it because it's too painful. I was aware that that could have been a problem for one of us, or I didn't know, but it wasn't. We both had similar enough needs that we were able to help each other. I don't know. Other than that, I don't really have, you know what I mean? I, yeah, I, it's I okay.
0: It's okay. I was just. No, I'm sorry. no. I mean, it, it I,
1: I, 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 I only, cause it's, it's, it is, a, it's a mystery, you know, I mean, two people's relationship over time is, is, is if anything, an ever deepening mystery and ours is, you know, ours, we've been through a lot together in a short period of time, you know?
0: And have you talked to Harrison about Greta?
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, he's three and a half now and by now he knows, you know, he knows who his sister is. He has known her name since he was born. But as he got older, he, you know, he slowly, as he probably became more conscious, he learned more about her. You know, I think he at some point, and we were waiting, became more conscious the fact that this Greta person wasn't here, you know, and it was a while of sort of letting him, (laughs) letting him just be and not telling him anything that he wasn't asking us about before he did sort of ask where Greta was. And, and, and that was fairly recent within the past, like six to eight months. And, you know, I told him that she died and he seemed sad for a second, but he's so young that it's not really a, a graspable fact anyway. But, you know, now then, then he knew that. I think I thought about telling Harrison a lot as this defining event that would change him and me and everything forever <laughs> because that's what it did to Stacey and me. But that's not how it's worked in reality. And if I stopped to examine it, I realized that, you know, that was me worrying and uh, it was never going to be realistic. We've told him a little bit at a time and only very recently on the, uh, what would have been the sixth anniversary. What was the sixth anniversary of, of Greta's death? Did we tell, did actually, I wasn't even home. He asked, he asked Stacey, my wife, how, how, what, 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 what were his words? why Greta died that was what he said and she said well I don't know why buddy but here's what happened and that you know and so his only questions apparently were who were the people that lived in the building mm-hmm. which is interesting and beautiful to me that that was something his mind went to and actually I don't I don't you know I don't even know and what was wild because I wasn't there but what was interesting to me about that moment thinking about it now is that I, I wasn't I wasn't, it wasn't such a momentous moment. It wasn't such a revelatory, you know, unbelievable sort of stop everything moment of disclosure that I felt like our lives just stopped. I mean, I, I think that I acknowledged that and Stacey and I sort of looked at each other over his head and then the, and then kind of the evening went back to what it would have been normally. And I, that's been interesting to me as a parent to sort of live through what were, what were some of my worst fears, you know, as he was still an infant and as Stacey was pregnant. Mm.
0: Is writing going to continue to serve you? Like, do you continue to do it as a pastime? And do you feel like you would want to write another book? Or I know you did this, you know, you were an editor at Pitchfork and you have obviously Mm. had a whole career in this as well. So it's not just like a dalliance, but Mm. is Mm. it serving you emotionally the way it did before? Are you using it the same way?
1: I mean, I'm a writer. I'm not just a, you know, I'm, I'm not a person who, who, who got a memoir out of his system and is now not a writer anymore. I'm, I've been a writer for fifteen, twenty years. I mean, when I was asked what I wanted to be at the age, at the age of seven, I said a writer. And I'm, I mean, I will all the fact that I wrote this memoir. I think is is testament to the fact that I'm sort of compulsively a writer and will never not be. And yeah, I mean, writing is part of how I. It's one of the only ways I know how to make sense of things and, and to answer the question that, yeah, I mean, about the book, I'm writing another book actually I'm, I'm I shortly after the the book was sold once more We saw Stars, and I realized that I was going to have a book, I started thinking, okay, well, I know I don't want to only have one book out in the world, and i i I've always wanted you know i didn't I've always known in my life that I would write a book i I didn't ever hope it would or want it to be this one. But now that it is this one, what am I going to do? And so I went back to school for an MFA that I'd been thinking about doing for a very long time because it seemed like an appropriate moment in my life to do it, you know, and I'm writing a novel. So I will be writing and it will serve the same function. I mean, the novel has loss in it. It couldn't, it couldn't not have loss in it. Probably nothing I write will not have loss in it again as long as you know I'm writing. But yeah, in that way, it, 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 can, it continues to serve me as this sort of conduit.
0: Do you have any advice for aspiring authors?
1: Write all the things down that you think you should write down. <laughs> <laughs> if you think I should write that down, you probably already should have written it down.
0: <laughs> Keep
1: something by. I mean, I, I feel like the the moment that I realized that I was a writer by trade, to use this somewhat kind of pretentious sounding, was when I started carrying, you know, something that I could write down. And for a while, it was a notepad. But I, to be honest, this is, you know, maybe a sacrilegious. I've never, never liked notepads. I'd lose them. They'd get crinkled up. And it was when I suddenly realized I had a notes app on my phone right in front of me all the time that I could I could literally mumble into that I started writing everything down. Yeah, I mean, that's the best advice I know how to give. Everything else is up to the person. You know, again, it's sort of like marriage advice. It's so personal. <laughs> that's where I would start.
0: Excellent. Well, Jason, yeah. thank you for sharing your family's experience, your experience, your writing advice, and, and all the rest, and also your, your beautiful book that I'm just so glad... Did not stay just for you, as I mentioned before. And now I can't Thank wait you, to Siby. I can't wait to read your novel. So oh, keep well, cranking. Okay. <laughs> keep yeah, at it.
1: <laughs> Thank you so much. All right. Siby. Thanks Thank for you all for your reading time. It. Yeah. I will. Okay. All right.
0: Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks again for listening to my podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you liked this episode, please follow me on Instagram at Zibbie Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and sign up for my mailing list at ZibbyOwens.com so you can always hear about the latest things I'm up to. Thanks a lot. Thanks to Blue Land Cleaning, our sponsor for today's episode Blue Land Cleaning. Get your single use pack plastic packaging, make that a thing of the past with this eco friendly cleaning products company. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com.